Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, you'll find the uh, notes in the bulletin. And this morning as we pause from our study of Luke, we're about 45 messages into Luke, just about a year actually from when we started. We're keeping pace. I think, well, it's going to take us probably about two and a half years total to finish Luke. We're pausing our study of Luke for the next four weeks to do a series on biblical parenting, a series on biblical parenting. And we thought it was timely, and as we begin this message, hopefully you'll see why this is a significant topic. But just so you understand, this week and then the following three Sundays, we'll be pausing Luke, looking at the issue of how does God, what instruction does he give on how to parent or how to be children? What what does the Word of God have to say about that? I want to begin by reading the text that will sort of frame our study, Ephesians chapter 6, Verses 1 through 4. The apostle writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And in those four simple verses, we've got an outline for the topics we'll be studying in the following weeks. But I want to begin by asking a couple questions. And this morning is mainly going to be an introduction, introduction to themes, hopefully grab your attention, get you to work through this. So the first question I want to address is this. Why study this topic now? Why why pause our study of Luke's gospel? We normally go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And this series, even though it's governed by Ephesians 6, will be in many respects topical. We'll be jumping around the different portions of the Bible. Why, why do that? I could think of at least two reasons why it would be good and right. The elders, we talked about this. Um, the first is that we are, to my experience, to my understanding, in the middle of an unprecedented blessings, unprecedented blessings in this body. Um, by my count, and I had Lois Sweet and Holly help me, we counted 45 new children added to this body in the last five years through birth and adoption. 45. If that number is accurate, and I think it is, that means 20%, more than 20% of those gathered here on an average Sunday morning constitute those new lives entrusted to this body. And that's just ridiculous. We, we have a very fecund and fertile body. And and that's a sign of God's blessing. No, no. The Scripture is clear on this. That is a sign of God's blessing. Psalm 107.38, By His blessing they multiply greatly. Psalm 127, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. So God has blessed this body in an unprecedented way, at least in my experience, perhaps in years past, there were other baby booms, but this one is showing no signs of abating and and charging on ahead. Uh, And we praise the Lord for that. So unprecedented blessings. Additionally, I think we live in a time in our culture and our age of unprecedented confusion. Unprecedented confusion. In fact, Paul warns Timothy this will be one of the signs of the latter days. In 2 Timothy 3.2, he says, For in latter days men will come who will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents. 
Um, we, we, our, our culture is, is, is in rampant confusion, and as is always, the, the wisdom of the culture will, in various places, seep into the church. So, on the one hand, our culture insists it's okay to kill unborn children. That's fine. But once they're born, you better make sure you don't mess it up. That, that's one of the confusions. Despite the fact that nowadays we have young children committing some of the most heinous crimes in, in the history of our country, it used to be that kids would bring rifles to school to go hunting after school. The guns have always been accessible, but the types of massacres, the shootings that are taking place, and yet our culture insists now more than ever, despite that evidence, that children are born basically good, right? Children are good, and whatever bad things we see in them are a result of their environment, or their upbringing, or maybe their genetics, whereas the testimony of Scripture insists, according to David in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So a culture, the wisdom of this world, contrary to all the available evidence, insists children are good. What's wrong? What's wrong is environment. What's wrong is biology. And what's, what's the cure? Education. We just keep pouring money in education. It, whereas the scripture's testimony is what's wrong? There's something in the heart. Folly is bound up in the heart. And yes, the environment's shaping and, and, and huge influence. And, and biology is a huge influence. But at the end of the day, there's a heart issue going on. Our culture is, is confused about the role of parents. So many parents want to just be the friends, the pals, the playmates of their children. Whereas we saw here in Ephesians 6.1, the, the, the Scriptures task and charge the parents to bring up the children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We live in a culture that insists we need to let children grow up and express themselves and be themselves, and the worst thing we can do is to stunt that. We just got to let them sort of figure out and develop who they are. And whereas there may be some truth to that, Listen to the warning of Proverbs 29.15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. A child left to himself. Just let the child do what the child wants to do. will bring shame. And of course, our culture um, insists and, and by and large rejects any sort of notion of discipline or corporal punishment, insisting that that only teaches a pattern of violence, Scriptures in Proverbs 13, 24 insist, whoever spares the rod hates his son. Whatever loves him is diligent to discipline him. So we, we've got rampant confusion in the culture, and as always, that will seep into the church. So the reason why we're pausing our study of Luke is on the one hand, we've got this tremendous blessing and stewardship of children in this body. 45 um, and new children. And on the other hand, there is just so much confusion in the world, and I think in the church, that we just thought it would serve the body well to pause and look and see what God's Word has to say. Because what happens is so many people I talk to in the church, that we sort of become parenting agnostics. You know what an agnostic is? An agnostic is somebody who isn't sure if God exists or not. They're not saying he does, they're not saying he doesn't. They just don't know. And, and what I pick up from conversations with people is this sort of mentality that just sort of we try the best we can and we just sort of figure it out the best we can, but who really knows? Is there any real right way to parent? And who knows? And we become parenting agnostics. And what I hope we'll see, and, and then this week and the weeks to follow, is that God has spoken and he has not stuttered, that, that there is clear help and instruction in the scriptures, that God has not left us is sort of in a foggy haze trying to figure these things out for ourselves. So that's why I study this now. And then the next question I anticipated is, okay, great, that's great. What about those without young children? Okay, so we got a lot of young children. There are those who, who are, are 
are not married, who are, who are looking forward potentially to the prospects of having kids. There are those who have, have, have the Lord has not blessed with children. There are those who the children are out of the home, and, and there are other situations in between. What about them? Are they just, just check out? You know, see you in three weeks? I don't think so. The first reason for that is because in Christ's church, we all become fathers, mothers, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. In Christ's church, we all become these roles. So the Lord may not have blessed you with biological children, or that might be something that you're looking forward to in the future. That doesn't mean you can't function as a father and a mother, as a son, daughter, a brother, or a sister. And a little later in Luke, we're going to read in our study in chapter 18, Jesus promising his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, what's Jesus promising? There's, there's a twofold promise. There's a reward that comes eschatologically. There's a reward that comes at the future age. But in this time, he promises... The replacement of how, how do you have many times more fathers and mothers? I, I think you can really only have one. Um, but Jesus here promising, no. There is none who has left a house or a wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time. As we read through the epistles, we find that the answer is that in the church, we become God's household and family. Listen to Ephesians 2.19. Speaking of who we are now in Christ, who we are now as a result of of the new covenant, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're members of the household of God. That becomes a a, um, phrase that Paul uses regularly to describe the church. Us gathering this morning, we are the household of God. Listen to 1 Timothy 3.15, the apostle explaining why he's writing the epistle to Timothy. He hopes to come visit him soon. He says, but if I delay, I'm writing these things that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And so he says, okay, Timothy, the church is God's family. It's God's household. And then as he goes on to give Timothy instruction, listen to how Timothy is to interact with others in the body. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. How's Timothy supposed to relate to the older men and women in the church? As mothers and fathers. How's he supposed to relate to the younger men and women as brothers and sisters? And and this is an important thing to grasp because we don't just walk and live our Christian life alone. We're a body. We are members of one another. And I think for those of you who participated in children's ministry in Awana, you get some of this sense that you are, there's a little bit of parenting that you are adding in, that you are helping out with your, your fathers and mothers and sons and daughters to others in the body. So this is important for all of us. Because even though you may not have young children in your home right now, in the church, God may well be calling upon you to fulfill some of these roles. The second reason is that we will all have opportunity to give encouragement and help to those with young children. Again, because no one walks by himself, we don't live and die to ourselves, but we are members of one another as a body. And as we're called upon to bear one another's burdens and we're called upon to encourage and to help one another, you will be called upon to give encouragement, counsel, instruction, and help to those with young children. Make no mistake. 
Romans 15.14, Paul insists that I am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able or competent to instruct or counsel one another. Galatians 6 instructs us that, my brethren, if any is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. And what are the older women to do, according to Paul, writing to Titus? In Titus 2, 3-5, older women likewise are to be reverent behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So here the older women are coming along, discipling the younger women in what spheres precisely in the home, relating to their husbands, relating to their children. These are things we're called upon. And I could add a third point, because God's word speaks to it, and all of Scripture is profitable, and all of Scripture is valuable. And so I think we will do well, even if you don't have young children in your home, I pray that you would... Take this seriously, study, learn this, and not, not zone out. Because God has spoken this word to all of us. You know, and when, we, when you're reading through Ephesians, Paul doesn't dismiss the rest of the congregation. And now for the rest of you, here's Ephesians 6. No, he just keeps going through. This is for all of us. This is God's word for every one of us. Third question. Why is this so important? What's at stake? What is the importance here? I mean, after all, can't we just sort of muddle our way through and it'll be okay? I don't think so. I think this is very important. There are at least five reasons here, and this is really the heart of where we're going to spend our time. Why is this so important? What's at stake? Number one, what's at stake? Our children. And this may be the obvious point, but let us not skip over it. Do you understand that as God grants conception, as God grants a new life into this world, each and every one of these children will never not be. This, this, this present earth will not be. This government will not be. This world system and order will not be. The stars at some point in the future will not be. But every one of these little children will never not be. Ever. That's pretty significant. And God has entrusted these eternal beings, eternal in the sense of having a beginning but having no end, into our care. And a lot is at stake Eternity is at stake because even though I believe in the sovereignty of God and I believe that God before the foundation of the world chooses whom he will regenerate and save, I also believe that God's word is insistent that he uses means and the scriptures again and again insist that the, the, the way parents parent children has a huge, drastic effect on the outcome of those children and the outcome of their souls. Just listen to uh, Proverbs 19.18. You want to hear about the significance of parenting. Proverbs 19.18. Discipline your son for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. What he's saying is if you neglect this discipline, if you neglect this instruction, it's, it's the equivalent of giving a death sentence to your child. This stark language, even more stark. Listen to Proverbs 29, 15 to 17. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. I'm sorry, Proverbs 23, 13 to 14. Listen to this. Do not withhold discipline from a child. 
If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. I know we're uncomfortable with that language. I know we cringe when we hear it, but what is that saying? It is connecting. Unmistakably, it is connecting discipline and instruction with the outcome of the soul of the child. And so eternity is at stake. Both our children as they function in this world and ultimately as they stand before God, we've been entrusted with this stewardship. We've been entrusted and God has given us the instruction. Tell them who I am. Teach them who I am. Bring them before my presence through my word. Call upon them to turn to me in faith. And Paul reminds Timothy about how he's had the scriptures from a young childhood because of the faithfulness of, of Eunice, right? And we see the effect, the consequence of, of, of Eunice's faithfulness in Timothy's current faith. Yeah, I, we, we get so caught up in our jobs and our professions and advancement in our career, I don't think on our deathbeds we'll be calling for our coworkers. Fair enough. I won't be calling, get that great sermon that I preached. You know, I think for most of us, I know there are exceptions, for most of us, the crucible of our disciple-making and, and the things that we do that will have the greatest effect in all of eternity ringing forward will be the ministry in our homes. I'm, I might be wrong, but I strongly suspect that for most of us, the crucible of our disciple-making and where the work and the effort that will have the longest eternal consequence will be in our homes. Our children, what's at stake? Our children, that's what's at stake. Second, our joy. Our joy, that's at stake. One of the reasons why I think our culture, by and large, for all of its insisting that it loves children, doesn't, and you can see that simply from the, the numbers on abortion and the numbers on um, average number of children per household, that, that just its spike has gone down, is because, as much as we don't want to admit it, we grasp this next principle. Because the scriptures are insistent that just because God has given you an eternal being, into your care does not mean that that eternal being will be a blessing. Children are a blessing, but depending on how you steward them, depending on how you, you train them, depending on how you parent them and nurture them, the scriptures insist they can be a cause of great delight or great shame. And I think that if, we, if we've, our culture doesn't understand parenting, and consequently children not being parented properly, I'm not surprised that our culture views children as a curse. You, you, that may sound shocking, but you think about people of three, four, five children, and people hope, oh, oh, we had a close call there. What are they communicating? Children are a curse. One more would be bad. Well, I get that. If we're not parenting them properly, they will be. Listen to Proverbs 10.1. A wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Proverbs 10.5, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, a son of the good work ethic. But he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Lazy, sluggard child, shame. Or Proverbs 29.15-17, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Verse 17, discipline your son. He will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. The scriptures are honest. They recognize that just because children come in as an inherent blessing, depending on how you cultivate and shepherd and tend to that, it can be a, a source of immense delight and joy or shame and groaning. So that's, that's what's at stake. Our joy, 
Our joy is at stake in how we take this responsibility upon ourselves. Thirdly, point C, what's at stake? Our maturity. Our maturity. In training them, he trains us. One of the things that was remarkable to me, if you remember about three years back, we began as I took over the regular Sunday morning teaching by going through the Psalms and the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And one of the things that struck me is the centrality of the home in finding the future and present leaders of the church. In fact, if you turn with me to, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, please. And, and what, we, what we gather is that just as the norm for most people will be marriage, and prior to the advent of dependable, affordable birth control, the, the norm for most marriages will be children. So, so Paul is assuming that in the normal pattern, this is what will be happening to most people, and as he's telling Timothy how to spot elders and deacons and leaders, where does he zoom in on? Their home life, and specifically to their faithfulness as husbands and their faithfulness as parents. What's the implication? Those men who are able to faithfully learn how to love their wives, faithfully learn how to manage their households and their children, those are the men who, having learned that, are now in a position where they may be able to exercise some oversight on God's household. So you go to First Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, speaking of the qualifications of an elder. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Then get verse 5. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? What's the assumption? There's, there's some similarity. There's some line of continuity. When you're writing a letter and you ask a rhetorical question, you generally do it where you think your audience is most likely to agree, most likely to say, well, of course. What Paul is saying is, is there's a learning. You've got to know how to do this thing. You've got to know how to manage your household. But if you've learned that through the school of marriage and parenting, now you may be in a position to use those same skills in God's household. That's the logic. You go not a little further to the qualifications of deacons. Verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. You, you get that, that this is a way God grows us and matures us. Now, I know there are those with the gift of celibacy. I know that there are other avenues of maturing. But from, for the normal situation, this is a primary vehicle of instruction, maturing, and sanctification in the body. It's simply the way God designed it in most instances. And so like, like any school, we can do well in it or we can fail. We can learn and grow and be sharpened or we can... Um, not. But, but as we look at the qualifications of leaders, Paul's insistent, these are men who must have learned these lessons. These are men who must have grown and demonstrated some ability in their marriage and in their households and with their children. And that's what makes them qualified. And so God matures us through this. This is a, a forge of sanctification, and we mature as we learn these lessons. In training them, he trains us. Fourth, what's at stake? Our church. Our church. As I just hinted at in the last point, God's household is in many ways very much like our households. 
So much so that, that Paul can tell Timothy, I want you to interact with those in the body like you'd interact to your family. I, I, I want you to take the skills that you learned in managing your household and apply them to managing God's household. That's the logic, right? That, that because these men, these elders, these deacons, have, have to some degree mastered or some degree have competency in, in the management and the shepherding of their households, now they can manage and shepherd God's household. That only works if there's continuity, if there's similarity. And you may think, well, how does that affect anything? I think there's a strong correlation between our culture's rejection of discipline of children and the American church's rejection of dealing with sin. There's a strong correlation there. If we don't see the one as good and right and beautiful, we won't see the other. Because dealing with correction in God's household is very similar to dealing with correction in our households. Or how we view authority and leadership and parents and their task in a culture that's dumbing down and and wanting to remove any offense of parents who instruct, who, who give commands to their children, who want to be their friends... What do we see corresponding to those who shepherd in the church? So as we understand what the family and what parenting, what the relationships are here, it'll only reinforce our understanding within the church because these things are connected. There is continuity. Fifth, what's at stake? Our theology. Our theology. Specifically, our understanding of who God is. It is not for nothing... That God has revealed Himself as a Father. And I want you to understand that He is the primary Father. It's not as though when God came around to revealing Himself in His Word, how shall I describe myself? I'm, I know, I'm kind of like a father. Rather, I think God created the family as a way of modeling and explaining Himself. That God created fathers and mothers as a vehicle to communicate to us His relationship to His Son and His relationship to us. And so what we think of parents and fathers, children, and their relationships will will drastically affect what we think of God as He speaks about Himself in those terms. So so God can relate to Himself in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2 as a parent whose children have rebelled. But just what do we make of that? That that will help us inform what that says. He says, children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled. The ox knows its owner, the donkey donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And then we get to Matthew chapter 6 with the Lord's Prayer and something we take so for granted, the fatherhood of God, which in the Old Testament, understand this, David, to my knowledge, never cries out to God as father. Israel corporately was God's son. And so Solomon praying for Israel corporately could speak to God as their father, but a radical avenue of approach is given in the new covenant so that Jesus can teach his disciples, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven. What do you think that means to call God Father, to approach him as Father? Well, if all of your understandings with parents and fathers are corrupt, if you're just importing your own experience, you may have a very distorted picture of who God is. Or go a little further. We read in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, that one of the benefits of the new covenant, we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in fear, but have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We've been adopted. What does that mean? We've got a spirit of sonship so we can cry, Abba, Father. And so how we understand these relationships 
These, these are the metaphors God is using to describe our relationship to Him. And so what we think about fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and children will inform, as we read these passages, what we think about God. Or go to he- turn, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Probably even more directly to our point. What you think of parenting and what you think of discipline and what you think of correction and what you bring to that is going to radically affect how you read this passage and what you think of it. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. Then he quotes Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he reproves you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have endured. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, Paul may have had a harder time asking that question nowadays. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. We may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Yet later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by that. You see what the writer of Hebrews just did? The writer of Hebrews just compared our earthly childhood and our earthly experience being disciplined and trained by our parents to understanding how God is dealing with us. You begin to understand what you think of that. If you think of discipline as fundamentally bad unnecessary. What are you going to think of God saying, I'm a father and I discipline you too? Yeah, what we think of these things will inform our theology. What we think of these things will inform who we understand God to be when he says, I'm a father and I love you and those sons and daughters whom I love, I discipline. Will we say, amen, or will we say, I don't get it? And so we're going to study these things. We're studying these things for the sake of our children. We're going to study these things for the sake of our own joy. We're going to study these things that we might grow and mature. We're to study these things to understand our church and how we function as a household, as a family of faith. And ultimately, we're to study these things for our own understanding of who God is, our theology. In the book of Revelation, the resurrected Lord again repeats, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So we've got to think through these things. What does that mean? What does that mean? And, and how do we respond to that? And how do we model that? And, and again, we're going to see God's word gives us the information. We don't need to just fill in for information ourselves. We, we go to God's word and he will tell us. He will tell us. So back to Ephesians chapter 6. I want to, last question, the last point I want to look at is what then will we be studying? This has largely been an introduction. I'm hoping that you see the importance, the relevance, the significance of this study and we've got three more weeks to go. Well, Ephesians chapter 6, I think, lays out for us the topics of our study. We'll be dealing with, first, the parent's primary responsibility. I want you to think about that. If you had to summarize in one statement 
what is the primary responsibility, the primary task that God has entrusted parents with? What is that? And there's a lot of possible answers. Primary responsibility is to get my kid into a good school. The primary responsibility is to have a well-adjusted child. The primary responsibility could be all sorts of things. But here in Ephesians chapter 6, it is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The blanks here, to teach and train the children. That's the primary responsibility. Absolutely the primary responsibility. There are all sorts of secondary goals that you can have that are great. But so often, our secondary and tertiary goals actually begin to conflict with God's goals. Because in push comes to shove, getting into school, getting good grades, that's, that's, that's what we're going to put our, spend our chips and put our time in. Whereas Deuteronomy 6, listen to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall hire youth pastors to teach them diligently to your... No, that's not what it says. Not, hold on, hold on. Let me, oh, okay, I got it now. Okay. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You know, pastors can help. We, we can come alongside and play support role. But who's the primary responsibility given to? The parents. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And then he doesn't just leave it there. The Lord God, here's what I mean by diligently. It doesn't mean a power hour once a week. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as signs on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Do you get the idea? This is, this is constant. This is incessant. Whether you're rising and walking and going about your day, whether you're sitting at dinner, what, what are you speaking about? You're helping your child frame the world. It doesn't mean you're constantly doing one big Bible study. What it does mean is your words are helping them frame through God's word reality in life. You're helping them develop a worldview. You're helping them understand what does God think of this and what are we to make of this in light of what God's Word says. Constant. Not just for an hour on Sunday and Wednesday night, but as you go about your day, as you sit down, as you lie down, as you stand, when you rise. Constant. Teach and train children. And we'll spend a week looking at that. And how do we do that? And one other thing, understand you will teach and train your children one way or the other. There's, there's no escaping that. The challenge is what do we teach and train them? Because they're watching. And I know for my own children, they, they give a lot more credence to what I do than to what I say. And so we'll consider that as well. What are we teaching them? And is there conflict between the words of our mouth and the, the deeds in our home? You know, one of the things that's frightening is you can't hide from your kids. I can hide from you. I can put on a good face for Sunday morning and keep my distance. And my kids see me at 2 in the morning when I'm trying to pretend to be asleep so that my wife will get up and change the diaper. They, no, they don't see that. Okay, my wife sees that. Okay. Um, but my children see me when I haven't had my cup of coffee and I'm tired and I'm grouchy. They, they see the real deal. And, and so the challenge is what are we teaching them? What are we teaching them? Well, that's true. We must teach them. We will teach them. The challenge is, will we teach and train them truthfully about who God is? I mean, in a very real sense, you are your child's God proxy. 
What I mean by that is you are the first father that they are going to interact and come to know. That you are the one God has called them to, to obey and honor just as, as they read God's Word, they're called to honor and obey the living God. And, the, and, and so what are you teaching them about fathers? What are you teaching them about God? And we'll spend a week looking at that. And the next question we'll address is the child's fundamental obligation. What is the child's fundamental obligation? What's the primary command or instruction that God gives the children? And and it's it's uniform throughout Scripture. And in Ephesians, Paul quotes the Decalogue. He quotes the Ten Commandments. You realize kids get their own commandment in the Ten Commandments. There's only ten. They get their own. And it's the first one with a promise. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you. You may live long in the land. See, this isn't a commandment that's meant to squash. This is a commandment that's meant to bring flourishing and life. God wants it to go well with our children. And yet the first and fundamental command God gives them, and in, in a very real way, because I think the parents are, in many respects, God, not proxies, but representatives. That might be a better term. Emissaries. Is honor and obey them. Learn that. Again, this is not the wisdom of our world and our culture. It means parents, if you're going to help your children flourish, if you want them to live full, robust lives, the first business you've got to get about is explaining, teaching, and requiring and calling upon them to honor and obey you. Now, you can, you can have fun. I have fun with my kids. We can, we can, in many ways, act like friends at times. But the fundamental relationship I have with them is one to whom God has called to exercise authority over. Their fundamental command is to honor and obey my wife and I. We don't deserve it. You see, it's not because Jeremy Kidder is worthy of honor and obedience. I am sinful. And my wife and my kids see it like no one else. But there's a living God who's told us, these are the authorities I've placed in your life, and I want you to honor them as you'd honor me. Children's fundamental obligation is to honor and obey parents. Then we'll spend one week looking at the parents' prescribed method or means. We've got so much confusion in the world on this point. And we'll see that the uniform testimony of Scripture is clear. Because the problem is a sin problem, because despite all the external influences and all of the, 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 the environmental factors and all of the biological factors, there still remains at the center a heart issue of, of foolishness and wickedness that we all have. And the scriptures are consistent. And here it is in Ephesians 4. The blanks are discipline and instruction. And they're both critical. Discipline and instruction. And we like the second half, the instruction. But it's it's a pairing that is crucial. The principle is this. Folly, foolishness, you can't reason with. Like like a ring in a pig's snout is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. And so it is wonderful when my children are able to be instructed, when they're not being foolish, and I can appeal to them with wisdom, and I can appeal to them with God's word, but there are times where foolishness is what is coming out. There is no reasoning with that. And so the Proverbs say clearly, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of proof will drive it far from him. Now we can discuss and what that looks like, and, and that can take on different aspects, but the fundamental principle here is that God has ordained that some form of physical or corporal punishment is appropriate and the the tool used 
in Scripture again and again commended to deal with that. And the very fact that we're uncomfortable with that just lets you know how far the, the, the world and even the church to some degree shifts from that. Now we'll talk about that. We'll spend time and we'll look at the other half as well where Paul tells the fathers not to provoke their children to wrath. Notice how here it's, it's a this, not this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And we'll look at that and try to figure out, okay, where are those lines drawn and how do we know that we're doing this rightly and righteously as opposed to sinfully? We'll look at that. And that will be our study as, as, we, as, we be, as we begin to wrap our heads around what God has said. Following these four weeks, there'll be an ABF that Pastor Daniel will be teaching um, that goes into practical helps. That will probably be more designed for the people with actual children in their home. But I, my prayer, our prayer, the elder's prayer, is that you would be thinking and chewing on these things throughout the coming weeks, that you'd be asking questions, you'd be talking to us, because the goal would be, as Paul says, that we have a unified amen, that we come to a one mind, that we're full of court and in one spirit, that as parents are struggling, the counsel they get from one couple in the church will be complementary to the counsel they get from another, that we won't be speaking different things in different ways, so that we can walk together after Christ. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to prepare for our final song this morning. And as we do, I just want to close in a word of prayer. We're going to pray, and then we will sing. Um, just praying that the Lord would give grace. The Lord would allow us to take seriously the stewardship that he's entrusted to us. Lord God, you have blessed us abundantly. Um, our cup overflows. You have, you have entrusted into our care these precious, these eternal beings who bear your image, who will never not be, who, who look forward to an eternity either in your presence in the glory of your Son, or far from you, Lord. Let us not be distracted by lesser things. Let us take that stewardship seriously. And Lord, let us not look to the wisdom of this world. Let us not look to um, pop culture to learn how we should steward and care for these children you've entrusted to us. Rather, let us look to your word. Let us think your thoughts after you. Let us be obedient children of our Heavenly Father. And then, Lord, give us the grace. Give us the wisdom to carry that out. In Jesus' name, amen.